What happens when Emperor Napoleon I no longer wants to be your husband? Can you ever really stop being Empress of France? Today's episode is all about the later life of Josephine Bonaparte. Hey everyone, Christine here. Welcome to Footnoting History's newest addition to the Revolutionary France series. Back in 2014, I did an episode called Before Napoleon. It covered the story of Josephine Bonaparte's first marriage, and the idea for this episode came to me as a result of that one. In many narratives, once Napoleon and Josephine's marriage ends, the focus shifts to his second wife, his defeats, and his exile, while Josephine becomes a memory. But, as we will see, she didn't get erased from Napoleon's mind, so she shouldn't disappear from ours either. Let's jump in. The infamous year of separation is 1809. Napoleon and Josephine have been emperor and empress of France since 1804, and they have been married for over a decade. They have, by this point, become quite a formidable and complementary team. Napoleon, for all of his intelligence and ambition, distinctly lacked people skills. Josephine made up for this by providing a warmth that earned her descriptions like elegant and charming. The combination of personalities served them well. So why then, if they were so strong a pairing, did things have to end? The first complication, and the most commonly known, I think, is that Josephine was unable to have a child with Napoleon. She had two children, Eugene and Hortense, by her first husband, and Napoleon treated them as if they were his own, though clearly they were not. It may be acceptable for a man to not have children of his own body when he is simply a military leader or a temporary official, but for an emperor to not have a direct descendant, that's a completely different thing. One potential solution to this failed. As I've mentioned in a past podcast or two, Josephine's daughter Hortense and Napoleon's brother Louis were married, thus joining Josephine and Napoleon's bloodlines. In 1807, Louis and Hortense's young son, who was a potential heir for Napoleon, passed away. As if this wasn't bad enough for Josephine, I mean, the boy was her grandson after all. By 1809, one of Napoleon's former mistresses had produced a son, and another was pregnant. This ended any question of Napoleon being the infertile half of the pair. There was no way that this could leave Josephine's marriage undamaged. She knew it, and it scared her. Pile on top of this an assassination attempt on Napoleon that year that emphasized the fragility of his life, and then add the increasingly complicated relationships with other European powers who were wary of his ambitious designs or just plain hated him. It became clear to Napoleon, now more than ever, that a marital match with Austria or Russia would secure an important political alliance and, also, a child to carry on his fragile one-man dynasty. Any personal affection he had for Josephine had to be put aside. Josephine's daughter Hortense would later recall the pre-divorce period as a cruel time. Napoleon, she said, became unjust and vexatious in his attitude. He had indeed gone so far as to have the door connecting his rooms to Josephine's in one of their residences blocked off. This devastated Josephine. Still, 
Hortense offers us her interpretation of Napoleon's actions when she says, quote, I am inclined to think that the emperor's behavior was merely an effort to distract his mind from what lay before him and to fortify his decision to obtain a separation from his wife, end quote. It apparently worked. Soon, Napoleon officially broke the news to Josephine that he was going to end their marriage, and she was inconsolable. She already had one failed marriage, and had spent time in prison during the French Revolution, so difficult times were something that she was familiar with. But to build a life, and indeed an empire, with Napoleon, and then be put aside over something she could not control was understandably heartbreaking. Still, there was work to be done. Josephine attended the service for the anniversary of the imperial coronation, but she could not sit with her husband, and he began to keep his distance from her in public. Josephine had to continue to act as though everything was perfectly normal, though obviously it was not. In mid-December 1809, the civil dissolution proceeding took place. As part of it, Napoleon gave a statement. He said, quote, God knows what such a decision has cost to my heart but there is no sacrifice that is beyond my courage if it is shown to be for the good of France. I must add to that, far from having any reason for reproach, I have nothing but praise for the attachment and affection of my beloved wife. She has graced fifteen years of my life. The memory of them will remain engraved on my heart. She was crowned by my hand. I desire that she retain the rank and title of crowned empress. But more than this, that she never doubt my feelings, and that she value me as her best and dearest friend. End quote. Josephine grew too upset to complete her own statement, and it had to be read for her. A dissolution was announced. This was followed by a religious annulment, granted on grounds that were, well, exceedingly dubious and not everyone approved. In fact, 13 of the 27 French cardinals refused to attend Napoleon's next wedding. I hope that this was some consolation to Josephine that they stood up for the sanctity of her marriage. But what happened to Josephine now that she was no longer the wife of France's emperor, but still had the title of empress? It was definitely an odd time. No longer able to live in the palace, Josephine went to Malmaison, her beloved home a short ride from Paris. Napoleon too left the city heading to Trianon, where he for once did very little work but he did pay call to Josephine. He never went into Malmaison, but they would spend hours together talking and strolling arm in arm. They also wrote to one another, sharing their mutual despair over the situation that forced them to separate. During this period, Napoleon even gave her a new, expensive dinner service and extra money on top of her regular income to expand her garden. Soon, as plans were set in motion for Napoleon to marry Marie-Louise of Austria, their interaction dwindled. Still, no one who visited Josephine ever heard her say anything negative about her ex-husband. Not even when Napoleon realized that if he wanted France to accept his new wife, and for that new wife to be comfortable, he could not have his former wife in the Paris area. You see, in the terms of their split, Napoleon had given Josephine, in addition to Malmaison, a residence in Paris that he was now hoping she wouldn't continue to use. So Napoleon gave her a less than beautiful new gift. It was the Chateau de Navarre, located well away from Paris. Then he not so subtly suggested when she should go there, which just happened to be right around when Marie-Louise was coming to France. Josephine took the hint, 
though she waited until the last possible minute, and then she exited the area. Meanwhile, her two children were still treated as Napoleons and were expected to attend his wedding to their mother's replacement. It was no doubt difficult for Josephine to be out of the inner circle. Here she was, still recognized with the rank of empress and expected to live embodying all that implied, entertaining visitors, but, at the same time, not welcome at any events. She had to accept that many of the people who surrounded her wanted to leave and try to join the new empress's household. She wrote many recommendations for them, watched her entourage shrink, and had to grow used to life on the periphery. Even her hairdresser went over to the new empress, and her own daughter Hortense was assigned as a lady-in-waiting to Marie-Louise. Hortense's position in the new court kept Josephine informed about what was going on there. Josephine would never meet the new empress, who has been reported as having never exactly warmed to the idea of Josephine being in close proximity. During this time, Josephine traveled as far as Geneva, where she had a warm reception, and Milan, where she visited with her son Eugene and his family. But she worried that Napoleon wanted her to stay permanently out of France. Luckily, that was not ultimately the case, and she was able to return to Malmaison. There, though she redecorated, she avoided changing Napoleon's rooms from how they were during their marriage. She surrounded herself with family, developed extensive gardens and greenhouses which she loved taking visitors to tour. She introduced her guests to the exotic flowers and fruits she grew and showed off her menagerie. There were definitely things about being there that made her happy, and she continued her lifelong habit of overspending, and Napoleon continued his lifelong habit of telling her to stop. (laughs) Now nearing 50 years of age, she gained a bit of weight, something that Napoleon would eventually tease her about. When Napoleon's much-desired son was born, he wrote to her about it, while in the same letter he also praised his stepson Eugene. Josephine asked Napoleon to meet the little boy, who, in theory, made ending her marriage worth it. Eventually her wish would be granted, though it was a secretive affair meant to be kept from Marie-Louise. She met little Napoleon II while he was in the care of his governess, and it was an understandably emotional time. I should probably note that Napoleon visited Josephine at Malmaison in 1811, shortly before he left for what would be his disastrous Russian campaign. They sat together outside, talking like they had when they first split. They remained in contact after, but never saw one another again. By the spring of 1814, Napoleon's position was dire. Marie-Louise and the rest of those he had left in charge in Paris fled. Opposing troops representing his allied enemies, namely the Russians, Prussians, and Austrians, occupied the city. It was a terrifying experience for Josephine. She relied on Napoleon for pretty much everything she had, and who knew what her association with him might mean to the opposition. She awaited news from the hopeful safety of the Chateau de Navarre, but the news that came was that Napoleon was overthrown and being sent to Elba. As you can imagine, There were multiple levels on which this was soul-crushing for her. On top of her concern and tears over the fate of her ex-husband, it also meant that, yet again, her future was uncertain. Josephine's security was entirely dependent on the mercy of the foreign powers that overthrew the man she still cheered for. When she had to worry about her future and her children, she knew that she had to continue to do what she did best. She remained gracious and welcoming. 
She was that most useful of things to a country that was being asked to accept the return of the very monarchy it once toppled, a person who had connections in all levels of French society. Even Louis XVIII, the new king, reportedly commented to Eugene that he was glad for all Josephine had done for the country in the past. She eventually settled back at Malmaison again, which became a major visiting point for foreign dignitaries. None of them ever doubted her dignity or her loyalty to her ex-husband. The most frequent visitor she had was Tsar Alexander of Russia. He was very much taken by Josephine and Hortense, and he helped them obtain personal and financial security under the new regime, also offering Josephine a place to stay should she ever visit Russia, which she never did. Josephine continued to cultivate the relationship she needed with these foreigners, but she became angry if anybody suggested that she was being disloyal to Napoleon, and she lamented that she could not have gone into exile with him. Napoleon would, of course, return to Paris, and he would rule again up until his defeat at the Battle of Waterloo. But, for better or worse, Josephine did not live to see it. During one of the Tsar's visits, she took ill while out with him. Though she continued to host guests, her chill turned into a cold, which turned into a fever, difficulty speaking, and labored breathing. This never subsided. Josephine passed away on May 29, 1814. Hortense, completely overcome, was in another room, but Eugene was by her side. She was laid to rest in the nearby church of St. Pierre St. Paul, and her children commissioned a memorial to her that you can see if you visit the church today. I've actually put pictures of it up on footnotinghistory.com. But even in death, her association with Napoleon continued. When he returned and took control of France again, he not only questioned Josephine's doctor about the cause of her death, but he also visited Malmaison twice. First it was with Hortense, during which he spent time alone in the room where Josephine had died. The second time was following his defeat at Waterloo. He spent several days in Josephine's favorite place before setting off on the journey that would end in his final exile. Despite everything, Josephine probably would have been pleased to know both that he visited Malmaison and that he wondered if she had been his good luck charm. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.